Amen. Good morning, Mars Hill. We are in Acts chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 26 down to 40. We're continuing our study through Acts. We're looking again at the life of Philip, the, the evangelist who has been conveying the gospel to all sorts of different people, and he comes to a very unique character in this story. And this text should sufficiently shock us, maybe even offend us a little bit, and then it should also amaze us. And so let me read the text for us this morning. It's amazing. I get the privilege of knowing what we're going to read, study, text, that the text we're going to be in uh, while we sing the songs, and the song we just sang is this text. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south, go to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I? Unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch both, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotos, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. There's a number of ways we could divide this text, see sort of the outline, the flow of this text. This morning, I want us to understand first this extraordinary, unlikely outsider. That's evident in the text. We'll see it. We need to unpack it just a little bit more. And then what we see is that this outsider is brought near to God by Jesus and Jesus alone. And then we need to see practically how it happens. It happens by the initiating work of the Spirit using a faithful servant to communicate Jesus, the good news of the gospel. Let's understand this outsider, this unlikely outsider. Everything about this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, who's traveled up to Jerusalem and is now traveling down, everything about this man, all of the biographical details, every single detail that Luke provides us shows us a man that is far from God. Now, he's not far from God because he's not pursuing God. He is actually pursuing the presence of God. We'll see that in the text. He's far from God. Geographically, he's far from God, 
ethnically. He's far from God racially in this text. This is one of the things that, that, that Philip or that Luke highlights. He's far from God religiously. He's far from God in every way, at least in the minds of the reader. And that's why Luke gives us these details. At least in the minds of the Jewish audience that would have been reading this, this first audience that would have read this text, this man is an outsider. Let's understand the biographical details that he provides. First, we see he's geographically distant from God. We see it in verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down. That key, that's a key word, down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This, he says, to make it clear, is a desert place. Geographically, this is the fringes of society. This is far from the epicenter of the temple. This is far from the epicenter of the presence of the living God at this time. This is far from that. This is going down from Jerusalem. Gaza was 2,500 feet lower than Jerusalem. He's descending away from Jerusalem. And just in case we wondered, this man is in a desert place, a desolate place. This man geographically is far from God. It's telling us something. He's distant from the presence of God. And Luke is making it clear that this is a deserted, desert road that he's traveling on. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's the outer outskirts of the outskirts. That's what Luke is telling us. And then he says, he provides some more details about the man. He says that he sent Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And he rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship, but he was returning seated in his chariot, reading the scroll of Isaiah. He provides us so many biographical details, and we have to ask, why does he do that? What do these all mean? So let's take them one at a time and understand what he's saying here about this man. First, he says that he's Ethiopian. It's another geographical marker in the text that tells us something about this man. He's not from Jerusalem. He's not from the north of Jerusalem, Samaria, where Philip was. He's from a place called Ethiopia. Now, when we think of Ethiopia, we think of that country south of Egypt, the little horn of Africa. That's what we think of. But at this time, Ethiopia was everything south of Egypt. It was the entire continent of Africa. In fact, in, in ancient historical literature, in Homer's Odyssey even, in, to emperors, they all referred to Ethiopia. They used that word Ethiopia to refer to the ends of the earth. Emperors called it the ends of the earth. Writers called it the ends of the earth. Up until this point in the text, this is the uttermost ends of the earth. That's where this man is from. From the outer outskirts, from the distant, faraway lands of Ethiopia. And this is a, a geographical, biographical detail about this man. But it's also telling us something else. It's telling us not simply where he's from, it's telling us that he's not only from a distant land, he also looks different than everyone else. He's not Middle Eastern. 
He is, and this is a way that most historians and literature would, would describe someone from Ethiopia, that he is a black man. Sometimes it would, it would talk about Ethiopia, people from Ethiopia not simply say that he's an Ethiopian, they would say he's a black African, which means he's an Ethiopian. His skin color is different from everyone else at this point, at least in this geography, just south of Jerusalem. He is clearly, what Luke is saying by calling him Ethiopian, he's clearly other at this moment. He's clearly an outsider at this moment. He is not like everyone else here in this particular part of the world. He's telling us that this man is obviously different. He's obviously from a distant land, visibly other than Middle Eastern, visibly other than Jewish. And then he goes one step further and he says that he is a eunuch. Now, if you think describing a eunuch to a large crowd is difficult, include in that large crowd your mother-in-law, all right? <laughs> Who is here this morning? He is a eunuch. This man is sexually altered. He does not have, he's been castrated, he does not have the male organs that produce testosterone. His sex drive has diminished by 98% if you read historical journals or medical journals today. He cannot reproduce, therefore he cannot have a family. This man has been castrated. This man is a eunuch. Now, while some were born eunuchs because of some malformation of the body, many, there were still some that volunteered, which is extraordinary. There are more, far more, the, the, the vast majority were made eunuchs. Made eunuchs. Made eunuchs because of either a punishment for a crime or because eunuchs actually were sought after in royal courts. They were sought after in royal courts and they were put over royal courts. We'll see in just a second why he's over the finances of Candace's treasures. But they were sought after and put over royal courts because their sexual drive had diminished and they could be trusted with harems and concubines and queens. Regardless, they were considered sexually confusing, sexually nebulous. They were considered, they were viewed neither as male nor female. And they were something in between. And for that reason, they were often ostracized, often outside of royal courts, often brutally and savagely beaten often cut off from the people, considered extreme outsiders, confusing, confusing, poorly treated. At this time, this man's identity wasn't, this, this, this culture, their, their identity, men were largely in families. It's not like our culture today where, where a man's identity is largely in his independence and his autonomy and what he can do and what he can accomplish. At this time, a man's identity was largely in his family, in the ability to have children and a heritage, a name that went beyond him. And, and here, this man, that has been taken from him. He does not have that ability. And in this culture, if you don't have the ability to reproduce and if you don't have the ability to have children, then the culture thought, what good are you? And therefore, they said, kill him. Maim them, beat them, remove them. There's some kind of other, some kind of different. They don't look like us. They don't talk like us. 
They don't sound like us. Their voices would have been high. Remove them. That's this man's physical condition here. And it seems like that's what Luke really wants us to to see. This, This is the identifier that Luke repeats five times in this text. Eunuch. That's what Luke wants us to key in on in terms of characteristics. He is certainly an Ethiopian, but he is a eunuch. He's not just any Ethiopian, he's a eunuch. He's certainly a man, but he's not just any man, he's a eunuch. That's what Luke is drawing our attention to. This man is sexually altered, and and in addition to that, he provides us this other characteristic, this other detail. He is a court official. He's, He's a high court official. He's a wealthy official in the court of Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who was in, a, in charge of all her treasure. So despite the broader culture's disdain for eunuchs, there was still a desire for eunuchs. They would have been put in trusted positions over harems and concubines and trusted in, king, in queen's entourages because they were not seen as a threat. And in those positions, they usually would rise to posi- greater positions of authority and responsibility in a, in, a, in a kingdom's court. They would be responsible for things like finances and like treasures. It was not uncommon for, for Ethiopian eunuchs, particularly Ethiopians, to be kidnapped at this time. The Ottoman Empire would kidnap little boys and they would take them and on the way to returning them to Constantinople to put them into the the kings and the queen's courts, they would stop at a specific island and they would make them eunuchs. One out of two would survive. Those that survived would be taken on to Constantinople, put in the king's court, entrusted with these harems and concubines and queens and ultimately rise to positions of power and influence. All of this is indicated, his wealth is indicated in the text. This man is reading a scroll of Isaiah on a chariot. Not driving the chariot, but riding in the chariot. And he's reading something. He has an education. He's not just reading something, he's reading the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And he's able to speak to Philip in Greek. All of those things indicate this man is, a, is of a whole nother class. This man is of an extraordinary wealth, extraordinary means, extraordinary resources. This man has no financial need whatsoever, which puts him in this really odd position. He has all the things that he could ever want, wealth beyond our wildest imaginations. There's historians that record that in Ethiopia that, that, that they didn't even care about jewels and, and, and precious stones lying on the road because they had so many stockpiles of them in their closets. There's no need in this man's life, physically, financially. And yet he's not satisfied. And yet he has this, this longing for something else. He is in a literal in-between place, physically, considered an in-betweener, and he's in this in-between place between extraordinary wealth an extraordinary longing. You know as well as I do that having everything doesn't mean you're satisfied. You know as well as I do that having everything doesn't mean that you're automatically treated with dignity and respect. This man is not treated with dignity and respect. Even though he's in the court, he's a high court official. This is extraordinary, what we're seeing here in this moment. He's still has inner heart longings, even though he has everything. He still longs for more. He's got success, but he doesn't have the one thing he longs for. Acceptance. 
And the text gives us one more detail that I think draws out for us that this man knows this. This man is, is feeling this. It, it, it's not just something that we're perceiving about him, but this man knows this, this, that his status as an outcast outsider. He knows his position in society and culture. And that is, it, it's not as obvious, but that this man is someone completely on the fringes ethnically, completely on the fringes racially, sexually, financially. He's also on the fringes religiously, or you could say spiritually, at least to the Jews. He has gone up to Jerusalem, it says, Luke makes clear, to worship. But he's on his way down, and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. What's Luke telling us in this moment? If we know our Bibles, we know that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament tells us, it forbids castration of men or even of animals. Because it's seen as something that goes against God's created order. It, it forbids this. And in fact, it goes further than that. It says anyone castrated cannot be, anyone that's a eunuch cannot be in the temple of the Most High God. Cannot be invited in cannot have access, is cut off from the temple. <clears throat> you can look at multiple verses, Leviticus 21, 22, Deuteronomy 23. This man, if he had only been an Ethiopian, he could have at least gotten into the court of the Gentiles. Outside of the, the temple, outside of the, there's the Holy of Holies, and then there's the, the outer court where, where Jewish men were, were able to access and go in. Outside of that, there was the court of the Gentiles, and outside of that was the court of the, the women, and outside of that, there was a wall that said, no one beyond this point. And he could have got in, gotten into the court of the Gentiles and not gone beyond that point. But because he's a eunuch, he can't even get into that. He can't even get that close to the presence of God. He's excluded completely and because of his physical condition permanently from the presence of God. Every detail of this, the, the biographical details of this man surprises us. It should surprise us. It should shock us. This man is truly in the margins. He is truly an outsider. He is the, at the furthest reaches financially in height and, and ethnically and, and religiously in every other category sexually. This man represents every single person you and I would ever raise an eyebrow at. This man represents every single person that you and I might cross the street so that we didn't have to walk close to if we saw them coming. This man represents every single person that you and I would say, I just don't know if I can X, Y, Z, associate with, be seen with, talk to. This man is an outsider. And yet, this is the man that God sent his servant Philip to proclaim the good news of the gospel to. And yet, this is the man that God sent his faithful servant to to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. This is extraordinary and shocking. 
And it's lost on most of us because we don't read our scriptures or largely because we're just not shocked by much anymore. But this is astonishing in this text. This is an unlikely outsider, and yet he is being brought in, and he's brought near by Jesus. This Ethiopian eunuch is on the fringes geographically, socially, sexually, ethnically, racially, financially, spiritually. He's traveling home on a desert road after being rejected from the temple, rejected from the presence of God, and he is looking for something more. He is desperate. He is hunting. He has inner heart longings that are not satisfied. And he is scouring the pages of Scripture, specifically the book of Isaiah, looking for those answers. He is fully aware of the holiness of God. He has approached the presence of God, and he has been turned away. And he is wondering in this moment, will I forever be turned away from the presence of God? Is there any way, is there anyone, is there any way at all possible that I could ever enter the presence of God? Will I permanently be separated from God? That's what this man is asking. That's what this man is hunting for. That's what this man is wondering. He wants to know if he will forever be on the outside looking in, distant from God. And that has led him to the scroll of Isaiah, specifically chapter 53, it says. That's the text where he's quoting, where it's quoted here. Where he's reading something extraordinary about God's suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. And in this text, he sees something extraordinary. He sees that the suffering servant of God in Isaiah 53 suffers extraordinary humiliation. Extraordinary injustice. But he doesn't suffer that extraordinary injustice and that extraordinary humiliation because of some sin within him. He suffers it for the sins of others. And this man is astonished. This man is standing in awe and he asks, he wonders, he, he, he is so desperate for who this man is that Isaiah writes about. Verse 29 tells us that Philip asked him, after the Spirit nudges him to go over to the chariot, Philip asks him, he says, do you know, do you understand what you're reading? He's, he's asking him, do you understand this text? Do you know what this text is telling you about? Do you know who this text is telling you about? And the man's response is startling. He says, how can I unless someone guides me? Literally, that means unless someone shows me the way to him. How can I understand what I'm reading unless someone explains it to me, interprets it for me, helps me understand what it's reading, what I'm reading here? And he, he says these verses, or we learn that he's reading these verses, and he asks the question, who is this man? Who is this man in Isaiah 53? And he asks Philip to climb into the chariot, and he asks Philip to explain to him, to ride along with him, to walk along beside him, figuratively, he's riding in the chariot, to ride alongside him and explain to him this text of Scripture. And beginning exactly there, right there, right where this man is, right the text that he's asking about, right in the place that he is with the heart longings that he has, Philip begins, it says, and he tells him of the good news of Jesus through the whole Scriptures. 
He takes him through the whole scriptures and tells him about the good news of Jesus. Now this text tells us that he's reading Isaiah 53, and it provides us these two verses that he's reading from, from Isaiah 53. But there's no doubt that this man has been scouring the whole... If he has the whole scroll, he's read the whole chapter, and he's likely reading through the whole scroll of Isaiah, trying to understand, how is it that I could ever enter into the presence of God? How is it that me, an outsider, could ever get in? Is there any hope for me? And what he sees here in Isaiah 53, and, and it says that he, Philip took him to all of the text, he's probably explaining to him all of this text, all of chapter 53. And what we learn here is astonishing. The opening questions of Isaiah 53 tell us that something amazing is happening here. In fact, the, the opening questions read like this. Who would ever believe the astounding news we are about to announce? There's a, a believing remnant in Israel. Most of Israel has rejected God and God has, has promised to punish them. But there's a believing remnant and they're announcing good news. And, the, and, the, and it's so extraordinary. It's so dumbfounding. They said, who would ever believe what we're about to tell you, what we're about to announce? The answer is no one. It's just that extraordinary. And then they say the next thing in, in Isaiah 53, 1 and 2. They say, and who, not only who would believe, but who? What other nations has God revealed? It says the arm of the Lord, which means the means of salvation or the servant of salvation. Who else has heard? Who else will believe? Who will understand this extraordinary good news about God's means of salvation? It's so extraordinary and dumbfounding. And then... We read about the servant of the Lord, the means of God's salvation. And it tells us the astonishing actions of the servant. He was a man of extraordinary... Listen to what Isaiah says in 53. He was a man of extraordinary prominence. And yet he served. Just like this eunuch. He was royalty, but he didn't look like royalty. In fact, if you back up in, verse, in fact, chapter 52, verse 14, he was so maimed physically, humiliated physically, people wouldn't look at him just like this eunuch. He was an outcast and a dry tree, it says in Isaiah. Now, remember that phrase, dry tree. It says he grew up of a dry shoot, meaning he's a dry tree. There, is no, there just seemed to be no life about him. Dry tree. Just like this unit. He was rejected and despised, treated despicably. Just like this unit. He was a man of sorrows, suffering and mistreatment. Just like this unit. He was considered revolting. A man from whom men would hide their faces. Just like this unit. He was a among people. He was in the crowds. But he was isolated. And separated and shunned just like this eunuch. This man in Isaiah 53. This eunuch is reading of a man in Isaiah 53 that can identify, empathize, and sympathize with him. This man I'm reading about in Isaiah 53 knows exactly what I'm feeling. This man knows exactly every tear. He knows my, my heart. He knows what I'm feeling in this moment. And then... We get to the astounding good news. Beginning about verse 4 in Isaiah 53, it says, The suffering, this suffering, this despised servant suffered for the sins of others. Not for his own sins. 
but for the sins of others. He was despised and rejected so that we could be loved and accepted. He became ugly so we could be made beautiful. He bore our sorrows and grief so we could have freedom and joy. He was pierced so we could be spared. He was crushed so we could be made whole. Pierced and crushed are things, language used for making eunuchs. He was punished so we could receive peace. He was wounded so we could be healed. And that word healed in Isaiah 53 means to be healed spiritually, to be made whole spiritually, but also to be made whole physically. He was forsaken so we who are far could be brought near. It is only through this suffering servant. Verse 11, Isaiah 53. Only through this suffering servant can anyone be made right before God. Only through the work, only through the life, only through the death of this suffering servant can anyone be made right or righteous or whole or perfect before a holy God. Who is this man? Who is this man that knows my deepest longings? Who is this man that can reconcile me to a holy God? Who is this man that can get me access to the presence of the living God? Who is this man that can give me the face of God? Philip says, it is Jesus and only Jesus. Now church, you clapped and you sang and you cheered when we sang that last song, that first song in the service. You can clap and cheer when we say it's Jesus and only Jesus. That's a golf clap. This is extraordinary good news. Who is this man? Philip, who is this man? I need this man. I need his righteousness. I need his perfection. I need his resume. I need him and only him. He is my only hope. And it says, beginning right there with his question, in this text, Philip explained to him the, the scriptures and took him to the Jesus. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. There is no doubt. If that scroll, if they have the Isaiah scroll, there is no doubt Philip is, is, is doing gymnastics back and forth in that text. He's going to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 that says that God will one day call a remnant from nations like Assyria and Cush, which is Ethiopia. That it's through the suffering servant that God will call, suffering servant Jesus, that God will call foreign nations like Assyria, like Egypt, and like Cush to himself, and they will experience salvation. There's no doubt he took them to Isaiah chapter 61 that, that says that the suffering servant, Jesus, would one day proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed. And you know, Philip, you know he had to point out. Do you know that was Jesus' first sermon? That was the text he picked up and he read on, the, on that day, and he said, this is about me. And he dropped that scroll like a hot mic, and he said, it is me. 
That's me. There's no doubt he took him to Isaiah chapter 34 and Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 34 says that God will come and bring judgment on the nations for their injustices. For the evil that they practice towards other men. But one day, he will send a suffering servant. Philip, no doubt, explained to him that suffering servant is Jesus. One day, that suffering servant would come. And in chapter 35, one day, through that suffering servant, he will come to those wandering in a barren desert. Those feeble and with weak knees, which means with a physical abnormality that they cannot solve on their own. And in that barren place, he will come and he will rescue and he will come to save. And in that day, he will cause waters to break forth in the barren wasteland, streams to pour forth in the desert through the suffering servant. The burning sand will become a pool and a spring of life by a highway that will be called the way of holiness. And all who are redeemed in him will be overwhelmed with joy. Overwhelmed with joy. And sorrow and sadness will flee. And there is no doubt. There is no doubt if Philip is doing his mental gymnastics and Bible gymnastics back and forth in the scroll of Isaiah. He took him to Isaiah chapter 56 verses 3 to 7. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say... The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give him, give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. You realize Jesus calls the temple the house of prayer for all peoples. That's what it's called. It's only through the suffering servant Jesus that eunuchs could ever be made whole. It's only through the suffering servant that... Jesus, that eunuchs could ever be invited to the holy hill, the holy mountain, the, the temple, the house of prayer. The Spirit is, has made it clear. The text makes it clear. Philip is making it clear. Jesus became despised and a rejected outsider. So despised and rejected outsiders like this man could be invited in. Everything this man is hunting for, everything this man longs for is satisfied in Jesus. Stop the chariot. Here's water. What stops me from being baptized this day? The man is overjoyed and overwhelmed. It's no wonder he wants to stop the chariot immediately. It's no wonder he does backflips off the chariot into the water. It's no wonder he's asking, can this be true? Of me. 
The Ethiopian has found his heart's true home. Remember, he went up to the temple and he's rejected because of his physical condition. Remember, he, he went up to the temple. He could never become a proselyte of Judaism, a full proselyte of Judaism, because he's rejected because of his physical condition. He couldn't even get into the court of the Gentiles because of his physical condition. And he knows because of his physical condition, he could never get up to God. What's this text tell us? Where's the man going? He's on his way down. He doesn't have to get up to God. God has come down to him. He's come down to him in the faithful servant Philip. He's come down to him in the living word of God. He's now, this, this eunuch realizes in Isaiah 53, he's come down to him in the most personal and intimate way possible. He's come down to him in, in flesh and blood in Jesus. And that's what leads him to say, dunk me now. Verse 36 to 38, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down in the water, and Philip baptized him. We need to understand what this is saying. What this man is saying in this moment is, again, extraordinary. This is not God just loves him as he is. This is, no, this man is confessing repentance. It, often, though Luke doesn't do it all the time, when he says baptism, it is coupled with repentance. Baptism is an outward confession. It's an outward sign, an outward seal, an outward confession of an inward reality. This man is, is confessing in this moment the sign that, that he wants to die to his way. And he wants to rise to Jesus' way. This man in this moment is, is confessing that the, 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 he wants the people of God, which is another sign that, that baptism is, is, is that we're dying to our way, we're dying to our people, we're coming alive to the body of Christ. This man wants the body of Christ. The family he knows he'll never have, he is given in Jesus, the new kingdom family. And this man is overjoyed by that, absolutely. But it's also a seal. Baptism is a, is a, is a naming ceremony, as, as one writer calls it. It's a naming ceremony. He's receiving a new name. My identity is no longer as an Ethiopian. My identity is no longer as a eunuch. My identity is no longer as one rejected. My identity is no longer as one going down. My identity is a son of the Most High God. And that's enough. He wants, that's what he's confessing in this moment. And he says, old habits die hard here. He says, is there anything preventing me from doing this? It's so innocent and so beautiful. All this man has known is hindrances and barriers to the presence of God. What's the answer? Philip baptized him. What does that mean? All hindrances have been removed. They've been removed by the suffering servant who took our sins on himself, who bore our iniquities, who took our transgressions on himself. This is extraordinary. And it says the tech, in the text, the man went home rejoicing. Of course he did. It's exactly how the Samaritans respond to the good news of the gospel. It's how he responds. And then Philip is sent on his way, and he continues on good newsing wherever he goes. Everything is extraordinary here. And what should startle us should also amaze us. Because this is our story. This is our story. You may not have been sexually altered, 
but you have been and were far from God. You were an enemy of God. You were distant and far off outside the presence of God. And while you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were rebels, while we were still in our sin, in our uncleanliness, he came to rescue you. As we read this text, we should be startled and we should also be amazed of the grace, at the grace of God. This is our story. We were far from God and yet he came and rescued us. Or do you not know, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, Paul says. You were unclean, but you've been cleansed in Jesus. You were sanctified. You were far from God, but now you've been set apart for God. You were justified. Your resume was worthless. You could not get up to God by any means at all. But God has come down to you with a resume, with a righteousness. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, in Jesus Christ, for you. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of these things have occurred by the Spirit of our God. That's who you were. You once were an Ethiopian eunuch going down in the midst of a desolate road, but God came after you in Jesus. That's extraordinary good news. Notice how it all happens, and we'll move through this quickly. It all happens because the Spirit initiates and uses a faithful servant. Everything in the text is initiated by the Spirit. There's three verses that reference that. Verse 26 says that he prompted Philip to go, and then he said, go on over to the chariot, and then he takes Philip from the scene. Everything is initiated by the Spirit. He's, he's doing the work here. We know from the text, we know from the Bible that he's the one that regenerates. He's the one that takes our heart of stone out, gives us a heart of flesh. He's the one, the agent of change. He's the one that changes us, that transforms us, that rescues us and regenerates us. And he works through his servants. Look, Philip follows the, the, the lead of the Spirit, the nudging of the Spirit. And this is also extraordinary. Philip is given an absurd command to go to an absurd place. To go to culturally an absurd man. And Philip says, okay. Yes. He puts no limitations on who the gospel is for. He puts no limitations on where the gospel will be effective. He puts no limitations on who will respond. He doesn't go down that road. There's nothing in the middle of that road. Why would you want me to go there? He doesn't say that. He says yes. And he doesn't say that man in that entourage that doesn't look like me, that doesn't talk like me or act like me, that man that's so distant from me, he doesn't say that. He says, okay. It's extraordinary in the text. He obeys. He, what we're seeing is a faithfully obedient servant following the nudging of the Spirit, the lead of the Spirit. He puts no limitations. He simply trusts God at his word. Sometimes the Spirit prompts, we see in the text, he prompts Philip to go do this mass evangelism to the Samaritans. Speak in front of thousands, Philip. And then he takes him off the line and puts him on the side of a road with one individual that he walks 
alongside and then rides alongside interpreting the scripture over a longer duration. Wherever the spirit leads, Philip goes and he does. He simply says, tis mine to obey and tis his to provide. I'll do what he tells me to do. And then we see that Philip started where the Ethiopian was and he took him from there to Jesus. He started with the questions that the Ethiopian man had. In fact, he asked a question. Do you understand what you're reading? He simply asked a question. And then he started with the man's question in response. He started with the man's longings in response. And he, and he told him, he took him to, to show him how Jesus satisfies all of his heart longings. You and I will likely not encounter people reading Isaiah chapter 53. Saying, what does this mean? But we will work with, we will live among people who have heart longings just like this man. And they will be asking all sorts of questions. Do you and I have the patience to not get sucked into a debate over whatever they're wrestling with, but to ask good questions in response? Not get sucked into, who do you think is going to win this uh, political season? Well, you know, I think, I just, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I just think this. Instead of getting sucked into that, why does that matter to you so much? What's that, what peace does that give you to know or to, to have that political candidate or that political candidate? Well, it's this. It's independence and autonomy and it's, it's freedom. And well, it's this. It's financial this, this, and that. Well, it's this. It's social justice and care for this and that. Why are those things so important to you? Get to the bottom of the heart longing because everybody has them. Everyone is aching and hurting and longing for where Jesus can only satisfy. They just don't know that. They don't know how to articulate that, but you do. Philip takes him. He does what Jesus does. He asks questions. Jesus asked over 300 questions in the Gospels. He does what Jesus does. He takes him to the Scriptures, and he reveals Jesus there. Jesus did that with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Can you listen long enough? Can you have the grace and patience to give to people to listen long enough to identify their heart idols and heart longings? Can you ask good questions and direct people to the gospel? Can you articulate the gospel? Can you articulate how Jesus is found in all of the scriptures? If not, then how can we grow together in that? Because we must. What's clear is the Spirit leads, and what's amazing is the Spirit sent Philip to a man that the Spirit was already working in. A man that he had stirred up because of his life circumstances, because of his heart longings, because of everything about him. The Spirit has, has stirred up this man from Ethiopia to ask specific questions and seek specific answers. The Spirit is already working in your neighbors and coworkers and kids and everyone else. Are we sensitive to saying... Here am I. Send me. Where would you have me go? How would you have me leave? What would you have me say? Is this one that you're stirring in already? How can I help? How can I serve? And then lastly, Philip good news is anyone and anywhere at any time. And this is remarkable if you look at it. Philip, all the way back in chapter 6, he served widows. In chapter 8, we see, in 7, we see that he's serving Samaritans, enemies. And now he's serving Ethiopian eunuchs. He puts no limitations on who the gospel's for. He puts no limitations on who he will serve. No, instead he loves exactly like Jesus loves. 
He loved his enemies. He loved Philip in this way. And Philip says, I can't help but do the same thing. He served the rich, the poor, the in, the out, male and female, and literally someone who was considered in between. Jesus is the savior of prostitutes, and he's the savior of Puritans. And Philip makes no distinction. He simply says, where can I go? Who can I share this good news with? He does it anywhere, anytime. And it, listen, this won't happen. You won't act and we won't respond and I won't do what Philip does here and I won't do what the eunuch does here in over joy, being overwhelmed by joy if we don't see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ first. If we're not enamored by it, if we're not melted by it, if we don't see that we once were eunuchs and, and we once were far from God, but he came to us, if we are not melted by that, we'll never be moved by that to communicate it to other people. So if, if, we're, if that happens and that occurs, then it also will not happen without intentionality, without asking the Spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear the people around us that he's stirring in and to listen long enough to ask the questions to get to their heart longings so that we can share the good news of Jesus, which is what Philip shares. And it says it twice. It says that's what he shared with the Samaritans, and that's what he shares here. The good news of Jesus. He doesn't just serve. He communicates clearly, articulates clearly the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and how it changed him and how it can change those he shares with. Is there someone in your orbit that comes to mind that you can good news, gossip the good news of the gospel to, where you can share, where you can listen, where you can encourage towards Jesus. Let's start praying for them. Let's start praying for opportunities. Let's start being really intentional, saying, God, give me an opportunity today. Give me eyes to see and ears to hear today to share this good news, this extraordinary good news. Melt my heart, renew my spirit, that I might see the good news of the gospel and I might proclaim it to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news of the gospel that's just dripping from these pages. Lord, thank you for faithful servants like Philip, faithful servants like my dad who shared the gospel with me. Faithful servants who taught me the Bible, who walked with me. Thank you for faithful servants that shared the gospel to people in this room. Thank you for faithful servants that are in this room that share the gospel day in and day out. Lord, thank you for coming to rescue me, one who was far from you, who had no home, who had no name, who was not a son, but you made me a son. May we be melted by that and move to proclaim it to the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.